And uh, if you have your Bibles with you, if you could turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to do a longer reading than normal because there's so much in this chapter about the resurrection that I feel that I would cheat you if I didn't read the whole passage. Now, next Sunday at the five o'clock service, we start a brand new series. Um, Last Sunday, we finished our series on Israel and the church. Before that, we did the end times. And so what we're going to do, instead of going on to another topic next Sunday, what we're going to do is we're going to go into an actual book of the Bible. We're going to go and have a look at the letter of James, the letter of James. So starting from next Sunday, I will be taking you on a journey through the letter of James. And you know, it's important that we do, we do this because I hope you read your Bibles every day and you've got a good reading Bible plan. Uh, best thing I, I use is the Everyday with Jesus Bible. There's an Everyday with Jesus Bible that actually sets it out so that every day it has a passage of the Old Testament, a passage of the Psalms, a passage of Proverbs, and a passage of the New Testament all together. And then you flick. And if you miss a few days, well, you just carry on where you you left off. And I found that the best for my personal Bible reading. That's what I do. But, you know, often at churches like ours, um, we look at topics. We have a sermon topic. I mean, it's wonderful that Colin is actually taking us through uh, the letter of Corinthians in the morning. And it's important, important for us to deal with the Bible as God gave it to us. And God didn't just give us a book of doctrine, did he? The Bible doesn't have like chapter one. Well, I suppose it is a little bit creation, but it then doesn't go chapter two, redemption, chapter three, the church, chapter four, you know, prosperity, chapter five, how to pray. But God has given us the Bible in various forms, poetry and history and biography and philosophy like Ecclesiastes um, and the Gospels, descriptions and, and letters and prof, uh, I think I said prophecy. And, um, the, the le- and so if God gives us something in a form, there's a reason for it. So in the New Testament, if we have letters, which we do in the New Testament, a lot of the New Testament are letters, God gave them as letters for a purpose, not by accident. And so it's not enough just to pick out a scripture here and pick out a scripture there. What we need to do is study the letters as God has given them to us. I mean, if you've ever sent a letter or an important long email, what would you think if someone just picked one section of it, one paragraph or one sentence and, and walked away without reading? You'd say, wait a second, you need to read the whole letter to understand what I'm saying to you, not just pick little bits of it. And so when we look at letters like James, which we're going to do, we're going to go from beginning to end. We're going to understand exactly what that letter is all about, why it was written, who was it written to, what were the themes, how did it start, what's the middle, what's the end. That's how God wants us to study the book of James, not just pick out a scripture and use it as a launch pad. But today, we are looking at the doctrine of the resurrection. So here we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I'm going to, and, and I'd like you as much as possible to concentrate because it's good to preach. But, you know, the public reading of the word of God is very powerful. Just publicly reading the word. Because this is 100% the word of God. 
I mean, I'm not perfect in all my interpretation of the Bible. I try and help you understand the Word of God. But what I'm about to read, it's perfect. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you are also saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of apostles, who is not really worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, well, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found to be false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to, God, kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all the enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it's evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him, who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. And so, in this passage, what, what is happening here? Well, Paul is speaking to the Corinthians. And one of the things that some of the Corinthians are saying is that Jesus wasn't raised from the dead wasn't raised physically from the dead. And the reason that the Corinthians were saying this is because of their Greek thinking. You see, in the time that Paul was preaching, 
the Greeks had a philosophy. And their philosophy was that the most important thing was spirit and that matter, material things, the body, the flesh, these things were not important, not spiritual, and in fact were actually could be seen as quite negative. And so in Greek philosophy, the aim was, and in Greek mystery religions, the aim was to try and uh, free your spirit from the prison of the body. And so the body was often treated in two ways. And we see it both in Corinthians that they treated the body in two ways that wasn't correct. Because if the body is not important, then you can treat it in two ways. The first way is if the body is not important, if the body is not spiritual, if the body has got nothing to do with salvation, then you can do with it what you want. You can sin with it, you can feed it, you could do whatever you want with it because it's not important. It's just the body, if you believe that. And many of the Corinthians did. When we read about the Corinthians early, we find they're getting up to all sorts of things, aren't they? All sorts of orgies and sexual perversions and drunkenness at the Lord's table. And this was coming from the point, we'll say, well, my spirit's saved, my body is meaningless, uh, my body is trapping my spirit, so I can treat the, my body whichever way I want, and I'll just, I'll just fulfill the lusts of my body, and it won't affect me at all. And Paul has to say this, hey, don't go with prostitutes. This is what he says. Don't go with prostitutes, Corinthians. Why? Because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so the reason that Paul says to the Corinthians, your body is a temple, because they didn't think in those ways. They thought the body was nothing and could be abused. That's one way of dealing it, going off and doing whatever you want because your body doesn't matter. But there's also another way of misunderstanding the importance of the body, and the Corinthians did that as well. As well as having to pull them back from immoral behavior, Paul also had to speak to some of the married couples and say, listen, if you're married, it's all right to have sex. Because some were withholding their bodies from their husbands and their wives. And they, was, and they were thinking, no, no, we can't have sex. Well, I'm your husband. Oh, we can't have sex because it's not holy. It's not holy. And what we need to do is we, we, we need to keep our bodies subject. And, and our bodies are evil. Therefore, anything our bodies desire or, desire or evil. You can see how it goes in the other direction. And now... Uh, these types of people would not eat nice food. They would abstain from all sorts of legitimate things with the body because they saw the body as evil. So there was these two false views of the body. The body's not evil. The body's the body. And so when Paul comes to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's a very important passage because these people in Corinth are misunderstanding the body. They're abusing the body. Some are abusing the body with immorality, and some are abusing their body and saying, you know, I, I'm not even going to have sex with my husband or wife because my body's evil. And so, no wonder some of them were saying, well, the body's not going to be raised from the dead. Can you see their mentality? Why would God raise this prison of the Spirit Oh, the body, the body's not worth saving. This is what much Greek thought said. The body's not worth saving. God is spirit, and it's our spirits that are important. And the idea to the Greek of a bodily resurrection was strange, odd, 
And to some, a disgusting idea. They thought salvation was the moment when you died and your spirit finally was freed from the prison trap of your body to go back to the great spirit in the air, that type of thing. And so Paul says, I notice that some of you are saying that Christ was not raised from the dead physically. And so here he addresses that. And you heard what I read, and you can see how important the resurrection from the dead is to Paul. I mean, absolutely essential. And he begins at the beginning of 1 Corinthians by going through again the basics of the gospel, the gospel in a nutshell. You know, he says, verse 3, um, I deliver what I receive, that Christ died for our sins. We've been celebrating that on Good Friday, that on the cross, Jesus carried the sins of the world. On the cross, we see uh, at once, in one, one moment of history, on the cross, we see the love of God and the wrath of God. We see God's grace and mercy and God's justice on the cross. If you want to know who God is, the best place to, to, to know where God, God is, is Christ crucified. Because that shows the heart and nature of God more than anything else, the act of the cross. Because in it, we see the penalty of sin. All of our sins were punished on the cross. And Jesus had to pay the price. So those of you that have just watched The Passion, and you see the disfigurement of Jesus portrayed on the cross. You see his, his wounds and his lacerations and the pain and, and, and just looking terrible. Well, that disfigurement, the dif disfigurement of Jesus on the cross, battered, bruised, crucified, that disfigurement is our sin. What you're seeing, the ugliness of the cross, is a picture of the ugliness of our sin. I remember I used to think to myself, Lord, why did you crucify? Father, why did you crucify your son? Why couldn't have Jesus died for our sins in a more humane way? Couldn't he have just taken, you know, some poison and died in his sleep? Or, or maybe he could have been, you know, fired, shot, shot at dawn. Or maybe he could have been, you know, lethal injection or an electric chair or something. Why did he choose the most horrific form of torture and death ever devised by man? Well, because it was appropriate, because it's that kind of punishment that our sin deserves. Do you hear what I'm saying? So on the cross, the ugliness of the, of the cross is our sin. You're seeing your sin. That's what your sin deserves, what Jesus went through on the cross. Yet at the same time of seeing God's anger and God's wrath on his own son. And you see, God, why are you putting him through this? Because of my anger and justice against your sin. So you see the wrath of God. What a terrible, terrible death on the cross. Yet at the same time as seeing the wrath of God, you see the love of God. Because the Father asked the Son to go. And the Father loved us so much that he sent his only Son to experience that wrath so that you don't have to experience it. My, he loves us to send his Son to go through that. I would never send my Son to die for you. Never. Why? I don't love you enough. I love my Son more than I love you. And, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want him to take any punishment for you. Yet the father sent his son to the earth 
to take the full punishment that we deserve. And not only that, the son volunteered in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, is there any other way, Father? And the father said, no. He said, all right, your will, not mine, be done. So you see the full force of the punishment, wrath, and judgment of God on the world's sin on his son. And yet at the same time, you see the absolute love and commitment of the father and the son to us. Wrath and mercy mingled in one event, the mystery of the cross. But, and Paul says he died for your sins. He was buried and then he rose on the third day. And then it's interesting how Paul can at this time refer to eyewitnesses. People who actually saw Jesus raised from the dead. And there was a lot of them. He was seen by Peter and the twelve. They witnessed it. And, and most of them were still alive when, when Paul was writing this. He said, go, go and speak to Peter. Go and, go and, he's down there in Jerusalem. Go and speak to him. Go and speak to the twelve that are still alive. And they'll tell you they saw him. Also, he appeared at one time to 500 of the brethren all at once. 500 people saw Jesus. He appeared. And there, most of them, he says, most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Some have died. So he's saying, look, you can go and speak to those 500. They'll tell you he's seen by James. And even I, Paul said, didn't witness a ghost. I actually witnessed the resurrected Son of God. And so he speaks about the testimony. And, uh, and then he begins to talk about the importance of the resurrection. And, um, and, and, and we see this in 15 verse 12. We see where he says, some of you are saying that he's not raised from the dead. And in verse 13, he says, if there's no such thing as resurrection of the dead, then Jesus Christ has not been risen. So if people are going around saying, we don't believe that the, that, that the dead will be raised, the first thing Paul says, well, then Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. And in verse 14, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is empty. Think about that for a moment. Your faith is empty. And what I'm doing right now are just empty words if there's no resurrection. This empty of power, empty of meaning, empty of substance, empty of hope, and empty of truth. And you, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your religious life, your Christian life is empty. It's an empty thing for you to be here today. It's empty for you to pray to a God that's dead. It's empty for you to believe that God will fulfill his promises to you. It's empty to believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. All of that, all of the things we know are emptied. All our Christian experience, all our Christian knowledge are totally emptied of any meaning if Jesus was not raised from the dead. It's pretty important, isn't it? And I make this statement because sometimes when you, make, when you meet Christians, they don't realize, or I don't sense that they realize, the importance of the resurrection. Somebody was saying to me just a few days ago, there was a conversation between two staff members, and they asked me my opinion. 
Because one was saying that Jesus' death was the most important. And the other one was saying, no, Jesus' resurrection was the most important. And they were having an argument, so they thought they'd bring it to me and see what I said. And they said, which is the most important, Jesus' death or Jesus' resurrection? Well, in a sense, it's a bit of a strange question, isn't it? Because in order to be raised, you have to die. But in the end, it's the resurrection. Because if Jesus died, according to what we're reading here, and had not been raised, then his death would have been absolutely meaningless and have no power to it. And one of the uh, staff members said, well, couldn't he still die for our sins and not be raised from the dead? No. Paul is making it clear that the resurrection proved that his death was acceptable to the Father, proved that he had conquered death. If Jesus had died and not been raised from the dead, death would always have its sting, as we find later on in Corinthians. Death would have always been victorious. So if Jesus had died for our sins and stayed dead, then we would die and stay dead too. And so the resurrection is the center. The resurrection is at the heart of our Christian faith. The resurrection. I thought the cross was. Well, yes, it is. And it's right to say, Paul said, I only know Christ crucified. But without the resurrection, the cross is meaningless. And it's interesting. I won't take you to it. But Romans chapter 4, when you read Romans chapter 4, and you hear about Abraham, and Romans 4 says that those that believe walk in the footsteps of faith of Father Abraham. They're in Romans chapter 4. And then it starts, that's us. So we walk in the footsteps of Abraham. He's our model. His mistakes are very similar to our mistakes in the faith. His victories, Abraham is the Old Testament model of the New Testament believer. We walk in his footsteps of faith. And then later on, it talks about how God promised him that he would make him into a great nation. And it speaks about how Abraham believed the promise. And it says that he believed God. And then it explains what God Abraham believed. Who did Abraham believe? In Romans 4, it tells us Abraham believed God. And there was two aspects of this God that he believed. He believed God that raises... Sorry. Yes, thank you. (laughs) I'll get my versions mixed up in my mind. He believed God who gives life to the dead, and calls those things that are not as though they were. So in Romans 4, this is the God. If you want to know, in a nutshell, who did Abraham believe? What was Abraham's God like? He was many things, but he believed God. Which God? The God that gives life to the dead and calls those things that are not as though they were. That sums up the God of Abraham. Isn't that interesting that he believed that God raised from the dead? And this is important because Abraham's finest hour of mature faith was when he took Isaac up to sacrifice him. And the picture of Abraham sacrificing Isaac is an Old Testament picture of the father sacrificing the son Christ. It's a picture. And Abraham had made many faith mistakes before he was ready to sacrifice Isaac. He'd had his Ishmaels. He'd given up his wife, in whom Isaac was going to be born. He'd given up his wife twice as his sister, because he feared 
that he's going to get killed and said, oh, no, you can have her. I'm not married to her. He'd had his mistakes. But when he came to full maturity, fully understood God, what God? That God gives life to the dead and calls those things that are not as though they were. And God had called Isaac that was not as though he were for years and years and years and years and years. And Abraham found that's correct. What about how did Abraham find gives life to the dead? Well, he found that on that mountain. Because when, he, when God says, take your son, your only son, take him up on that mountain and sacrifice to him, Abraham took the boy and he said to his servants, we're going to sacrifice on that mountain and we will be back. And if you look at Hebrews chapter 11, and I'm going to read it to you because it's so powerful. Hebrews chapter 11 is just a uh, faith's hall of fame of all the people that walked by faith and not by sight. And in Hebrews 11 verse 17, listen to this. Hebrews 11, 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. Abraham concluded that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Isn't that amazing? Abraham basically said, I'll take him up. Because you said that Isaac was going to bear me children, that in Isaac my seed would be blessed. So you ask me, you want me to kill him? You want me to sacrifice him? No problem. You'll just have to raise him from the dead. Because you promised me. And your promise is more powerful than death. So what an amazing picture. Abraham believed in the God of resurrection. And so... If Christ is not risen, in verse 14, our preaching is empty and your faith is as empty. And then verse 15, yes, we are found to be false witnesses of God. If Christ was not raised from the dead, then then we have the greatest band of liars that ever existed in the world. I mean, just stop and imagine how difficult it would be to get, there must be about 550, 60 just mentioned here. And we know that for a long period of time, Jesus, for a a prolonged period of time, made many infallible revelations and appearances to many people. But here's 560 people or so, 50, 60 people. and, And each one of them has to be in on the lie that Jesus wasn't. Right, just imagine. It'd be like me saying to you all here, right, going to start a new religion. You know Jesus died last week. Well, it's not going so well, is it? So I thought, can you turn the cameras off and everything? I thought if us here, if we agreed and pretended that Jesus visited us in this meeting and that he was raised from the dead, right? And then we go out and tell everybody that Jesus has not died, he's raised from the dead, and our sins are forgiven if you trust in him, we could really get a good thing going. How many are up for it? (laughs) One at the back. Well, she's teasing me. She's teasing me. How many are up for it? Well, you're not up for it because it's like, wait a second, that's dishonest. And if you were up for it, would you be prepared to die for it? Would you be prepared? Because that would say, stop preaching Christ has risen or we'll kill you. And you're going to go, no, no, I'll die for the lie. Would you do that? 
And so the idea, and this is one of the greatest proofs of the resurrection, the witnesses that were there, not just the witnesses recording in the New Testament. Paul was saying, if you don't believe me, there's plenty of people I could show you. And so the witness was established at that time. If, if he was making it up, he wouldn't have written it. So we see the powerful testimony. And that would mean that all that we read, the New Testament letters by Paul would be fake, because he's a liar. Peter would be fake and a liar. Um, Stephen, who was the first martyr, was a liar, having a laugh, dying as a martyr. Why would he be doing that? The persecuted church would, would be, the revival that was taking place. Well, what, where did that come from? So can you see again how important this resurrection is? And uh, verse 16, um, verse 17, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. See, there's the important point I mentioned earlier. That if Jesus was not raised from the dead, you're not forgiven. You're not forgiven. Which means you're still in your sins. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, it means that if you die, then you will go to hell. So the resurrection is that important because it's the vindication and proof that God has accepted the sacrifice of Christ and that death has been conquered. Not only we are still in our sins, but all the believers that have died before are in their sins. And then verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable, almost to be pitied. I think that's really interesting. Because a lot of Christians actually live as if the only thing that matters is this life. They don't really think about the resurrection. I mean, how many sermons are out there on Christian television? I'm not having to go at Christian television, thank God for it. But how many sermons are out there on the resurrection? Usually it's about prosperity. It's about your blessing. It's about your answered prayer. It's about your lifestyle. It's about your home life. It's about your family life. All these things are important. It's all about now, your life now, and the hope of Christ now. Those things aren't wrong in themselves. But really, what Paul's saying is this. He's saying, well, <laughs> might be all right for you backslidden Christians because you're living for your next car, your next bless me, your next whatever, your next conference, but I'm, I'm living like this thing is real and that people are going to hell and I have to preach the gospel. Earlier on in Corinthians, remember he had to deal with the super apostles and he was speaking to them and saying, it seems that you're kings. It seems that you've won everything. I remember Colin preaching a very powerful message on this. It was about a couple of weeks ago, wasn't it, in the morning? Colin was preaching and Paul was saying, wait a second, you Corinthian preachers, you've got everything now. You've got the designer suits, the big limos, the aeroplanes, the cars. You're living in victory. You know no defeat. Everything has arrived. And yet I've been shipwrecked, beaten, uh, stoned into an inch of my death. I've gone hungry, been homeless to preach the gospel, been rejected, persecuted. Seems like you've got the good deal and I've got the bad deal. I wish that what you had was real. And so Paul is saying, well, wait a second. Why would I do what I'm doing? Why would I sacrifice for Jesus if 
when I die, it's all over. No, he says, the reason that I live like I live is because of the resurrection. The reason I, I, I do things and, and sacrifice and I'm a disciple and witness and the reason I put Jesus at the center of my life is because I know that when I die, I'm going to go to glory and that one day I will be raised from the dead. And so my hope is not in this life, Paul says. Many of his epistles, my hope is in the life to come. And I live my life in the light of eternal weight of glory and consider the things that I'm going through as little compared to the glory that I will receive at the resurrection. Very powerful. In this life only, we have hope in Christ. Some Christians, that's all they ever think about is what God's going to do for them now. They don't even think about death. Some Christians are just like the world. And the world, especially the Western world, doesn't even think about death. You see the atheists at these funerals. You go to a funeral with a, with a bunch of, you know, good old British atheists. They turn up, they don't know what to think. They don't know how to handle it. They play silly, inappropriate music. They try and laugh it off. Yeah, they try and remember the good times and, and, and everything, but they can't deal with death. So they play silly songs and, and they laugh, and like, but they don't know, they, they can't cope with it. And then they walk out the door, and as soon as they walk out the door, it's like, get that out of my mind and back to life. Don't want to think on that. That's why funerals in Britain take uh, 20 to 30 minutes. Have you ever been to a non-Christian funeral? It's 30 minutes down at the um, crematorium. 30 I've done some for family members. And it's like, what is this? It's like, it's, there's like a conveyor belt. You know, you're standing here and you can see there the group that's in there for their 25 minutes. And then here comes the other one. And then you're ushered in. Before you've even said a few words, it's time to press the button. Then you're ushered out and the door opens. You go out and as you're going out, just as you go out, the other door opens and they come in. And some of you from cultures, they may not be Western cultures but, but, and they may not be Christian cultures, but you know that in other cultures, death is taken far more seriously. But this is the Western way of dealing with death by not dealing with it. But death is coming. And what we're preaching, when we preach the gospel is primarily, its primary message is primarily about what happens after you die. That's what it's primarily about. This life on earth, it's just the Jew that's there in the morning and gone by the summer. All flesh is grass, gone, gone. And so the resurrection is important. And then he says, verse 21, he explains it more. That it was man, since by man came death. Isn't that interesting? You know, death is the enemy. Death is the most unnatural thing in the world. Some people find it hard to believe in God because of death. I understand where they're coming from. Someone very close to them dies at a young age, or someone very dear to them dies, and they think, what sort of world is this that the people you love most die? Or someone dies from a horrible disease or in a, and it's like what sort of or someone dies from an earthquake or, or, or war and it's like what sort of God creates I can't believe in your God what sort of God would create a world with death well he didn't 
He didn't create a world with death. He created a world with no death. The last time God looked at the earth and said, it is good, was in Genesis before we ruined it. He's never said, God has never looked at his earth and what's going on in the earth today and ever said it is good since we ruined it. What do you mean? Well, we brought death in. Death came in through Adam. You see the verse here? For since by man came death, man brought death in. When we sinned in Adam, Adam had the whole of humanity in him. And when he fell, we fell with him. And the judgment of God, we've spoken about the judgment and the love of God. The judgment of God for his sin was death. The wages of sin are death. Man brought death into the world. There was no death. Not even the animals died. There was no death. And one day there will be no death again. And resurrection is about conquering death. Because on the day of resurrection, death will be conquered. Your body that died will be raised. And it will be no longer subject to pain, suffering, sickness, or death. You will be indestructible. Now, part of you is already indestructible. Do you know that? Because the Bible teaches us, I'm just, I'm just going where I feel flowing today. The Bible teaches us that we have been saved. If you're a believer, you have been saved. What do you mean, I have been saved? You were born again, weren't you? A new creation. Was your body a new creation? You wish. <laughs> no, your body's still getting older. No, your body wasn't. Your spirit was a new creation. And your spirit is indestructible. Do you know that? Can't be destroyed. It's been raised. You were dead in your sins and transgressions, Ephesians 2 says, but God has raised you. Well, not my body. No, he's raised your spirit to eternal life and your spirit is no longer subject to death. When you die... Your body will die and your spirit will just be separated and go straight to be in the presence of Jesus. Your spirit will never die. And you are being saved. What do you mean? Well, the renewal of the mind. God is working in our soul. We are allowing the Holy Spirit and the Word to, to bring sanctification into our daily life. It's an ongoing progress. But we shall be saved. Which bit of you hasn't had any bit of salvation at all in any way? Your body. Your body is not saved one ounce. Nearest thing we get is God's healing touch. God's healing shows how much he loves our bodies. That's why Jesus healed so many. But everybody he healed still died. But our body, as weak as it is, will be raised from the dead when Jesus returns. And it won't be raised like it is now. It will be sown, Paul says later on, corruptible. It's like an acorn. It'll be sown like a little acorn seed. That's what your body is now. Even when you look your absolute best for weddings and things, you're still just a little acorn. But when Jesus returns, should you die, your body will be, trans will be raised from the dead and glorified. That's the word we use, glorified. You will be, compared to a little acorn on that day, you'll be a mighty oak tree. Bigger than this, but you will be amazing. And your body will be glorified. If, 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 if you were to be glorified right now, your body to be glorified right now, 
If I, if I was to take any of you, bring you up on the platform, and if God was to, in advance, glorify your body, yes? Immediately, all of you would be flat down under your face, under the glory of this human, resurrected, glorified body, and doing your best not to worship. Because when John saw the angel, he nearly worshipped. So imagine what a glorified human being is going to be. So when Jesus returns, he will raise, and you say, well, how, what about those that got burnt in a fire? I mean, how can he find out where all the atoms are? He's God. I don't know if you like me, you think about things like that. He's God, he'll find you, he'll find your atom. He knows who your atoms were. He'll, he'll find it, don't worry, he's God. And he will raise you up glorified. And if you're alive when he returns, you will just be caught up in the air with all those being raised and your body will be transformed in mid-air into glory, resurrection, glory. And verse 23 says, For each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, was anybody with me last week when we did the festivals? Four or five, cool. And when we did the festivals, we know that this is that our Easter is a celebration of the Jewish Passover week, isn't it? And of course, Jesus was not, did not die on Friday, did he? He didn't die on actually Good Friday. That, we just made that up. He actually died on Wednesday. And he was three days and three nights in the tomb. So Good Friday is a bit like Christmas. On Christmas, we celebrate Jesus' birthday. He wasn't born on the 25th of December. And on Good Friday, we celebrate Jesus' death. He, he didn't die on Good Friday. He, he, he was, because, all oh, right, don't get into that. Right? When Matthew speaks about Sabbaths, after the Sabbath, when those women came, the word is Sabbaths. And there are two Sabbaths after Jesus died that take place. And so people got mixed up in church history, thought the Sabbath, well, that's Friday night to Saturday night, and they didn't realize that there was also a Sabbath before that. So Jesus died on Wednesday. And Tuesday night was the Passover meal. Just thought I'd throw that one in. And you can go online and um, find things that will, will take you a little bit in deep detail to that. But let me, let me, let me bring this um, to an end, because I did get sidetracked there. I'm trying to figure out where I was... Uh, <laughs> Um, what, what my point was. Oh, yes, yes. If you were with me last week, um, we looked at the Jewish festival of Passover. And we said that on the Sunday, the last day of the Passover feast, was the, uh, the day of the first fruits, didn't we? It was the first fruits. Sunday was the day of first fruits. And what would happen on Sunday, and this is what happened on the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. And if you want to know more about it, you can go and w- watch the service last Sunday, it's on our media thing. What would happen on the last day of, of Passover's gone through, on that Sunday, they would send people out to the harvest, the barley harvest, and they would take the first bushel of the barley, the first, and they would bring it, nothing else, just that first, just the first fruits, the first sheaf, the feast of sheaf, and they would take that sheaf into the temple, just that sheaf, and give it to the priest, and they would offer it to the Lord. And that sheaf would be accepted on behalf of the whole harvest to come. It was like God was saying, I'll accept the first fruit, bless the first fruit, and the whole harvest. And so when Paul speaks here about he's become the first fruits, he's thinking of that Sunday when Jesus was raised from the dead, when it was um, the, the, the feast of first fruits, or the feast of sheaves, 
and when. And so the picture is this, is that if Jesus is raised from the dead, that's why we know we will be raised from the dead. Just like that sheaf was taken from the harvest, all the harvest was left behind except this one sheaf, and it was brought before God. And when that was accepted, it was known that the whole of the other harvest was acceptable by God. So when Jesus was raised from the dead, he was the firstborn. He was the first fruits. He was the one saying, well, now, because I have been raised from the dead and accepted before my father, you can be encouraged because all who believe will also be raised to dead. So you say, how do you know? That if you die, Bruce, you will be raised, your body will be raised to glory because Jesus is alive. Because he has been raised, he's gone before us. And so because we know that Jesus has been raised, we have absolute certainty that we too will be raised on his return. God has come to save the whole of of, of the human. He's come to save our spirit, our soul, and our body. And we are not human without the spirit, soul, and body. You're not, you're not just a spirit that lives in a bodily tent. Your body is part of who you are. And so when God saves, he saves to the uttermost. And he's not just taking us back to the way that we were in the Garden of Eden with, with Adam. He's taking us further and higher. He is going to glorify his people. And when we have been raised from the dead... And glorified, we will be indestructible. Sin will no longer be able to attack us or penetrate us. We will be totally and utterly saved and glorified forever. So that's why resurrection is important. Amen? Well, God bless you as you go. Some of you may be staying. Thank you. Some of you may be staying for our... And it is a very, very, it, it will, I mean, it, it, it will sober you up spiritually, this, this production. If you haven't seen it, it will sober you up spiritually. And also, it's getting many, many people saved. So we're believing God for a nice harvest this evening to finish our Easter week. Bless you.